Palmer Bear on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmer Bear. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're joined by a man who played 24 tests, 47 ODIs for Australia between 87 and 95 with a stunning career-best haul of five for nine. Tim May was part of World Cup, Ashes and Sheffield Shield winning squads, but his legacy extends off the pitch as the inaugural CEO of the Australian Cricketers Association, and he was the pioneer crusader for better pay and conditions for Aussie cricketers. Cricket attracts characters, and Tim was certainly one in the dressing room. Now, these days, he's happily retired in Austin, Texas, which can only mean one thing. His golf game has dramatically improved. Tim, thanks so much for your time and welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Sam. Now, you must get asked this a lot, but we'll open up the batting with how does an off-spinner from Adelaide find himself in the Lone Star State? Um, the, the simple answer is I married, uh, well, my second marriage, um, first one didn't end up too flash. Um, this, I married America and... Um, she came and lived in Australia for about 10 years and we sort of had a handshake agreement when we got married that uh, she would come to Australia first and then after a period of time that uh, we'd return to be closer to her family in the state. Um, I always thought and hoped that uh, she'd fall in love with Australia so we wouldn't have to sort of pursue part B of the agreement. But uh, sure enough, you know, right on, the, right on the dot of 10 years or whatever, she said, okay, that's it. Pack up, we're going home. So um, that was, you know, not without complications. I still had a couple of kids who were either at school or college and um, that made things pretty difficult. But um, uh, now all of us, um, all my kids are now here in Austin. So the the whole family's here in Austin and uh, life is wonderful. Austin's a great city. Fantastic. And your wife, Katie, some sort of star, Maisie, part of the initial Executive team at seek.com.au, founded kidspot.com.au before selling that out one that one out to a guy named Rupert. She's retired as well now, isn't she? Uh, well, uh, yeah, she, it's a loose term retirement. She sort of uh, re- retired from being a CEO and doing detailed work and stuff like that. But she's sitting on about six boards as we speak. Um, they scan from uh, the United Arab Emirates to Canada to Australia back to the US. So she's got a few on the she's got a few on the go and she keeps herself pretty busy but she's able to sort of shape her days so she can have uh, you know a, a reasonable amount of downtime. And it's been 16 years there now hasn't it? As you mentioned you, you and Katie got the, the you've got the, the four kids I suppose two of uh, whom have their own kids so I'm amazed yeah. the American accent hasn't infiltrated your speech to be honest. Well I think the older you get when you come over here it's um, the less inclined you are to get a twang or whatever I'm, I'm glad to hear that you there's no American twang coming out 
because, okay. uh, uh, yeah, I take particular pride in being an Australian. I like to, you know, may not look Australian, but, hey, I'd like to sound Australian. And with all the modern technology at our fingertips now, is it easy enough for you to follow the cricket and your Sydney Swans from over there easily enough? Oh, yeah, yeah, you just sort of, you know, it's either, there's quite a lot of football, uh, Australian rules football on uh, cable TV, like free-to-air stuff, um, and um, if it's not on there, then you can just, you know, fire up your laptop and there it is. So, um, I, you know, it, it's very, very easy. You probably, you know, I've probably seen more football over here than, you know, I would back home. And same with cricket. Um, you know, you can get games from anywhere in the world at any time. So um, following my Australian sport, which is bloody important to me, has been easy. So how do you fill your days over there then, Tim? Uh, how do I fill my days? Uh, start off the day walking the dogs. So we used to have three dogs, but Rex, the wonder dog, passed away recently. Um, but I've got a couple of... Uh, sort of like uh, they're golden a cross between a golden retriever and a Labrador. They're called God. I'm going to get this a golden goldadors. Very intelligent dogs. <laughs> Can be a little bit too intelligent at times, but I take them for a walk for an hour or so. Um, there's always some stuff to do around the house, and we've got a we've got another property that's sort of a couple of hours out of Austin um, on a the, the Guadalupe River, and that always seems to have something breaking. So I have to go there and try to fix it myself, or meet the tradies who come in and try to fix it. And then I'll hit the golf course. You know, five out of seven days a week I probably play, um, and uh, I mix it in with a bit of charity work here and there. So um, you know. Life, whilst I am retired, I'm sort of busy but doing very much things I want to do. Just before we leave the golf, I think you're only a couple of hundred metres from the Austin Country Club, aren't you? Which has a, a big tournament every year from, from memory. So you, you're handicapped now? What's it down to? Um, I've just, uh, I'm out to about uh, 2.1 at the moment. I was down to 0.8. Oh. Um, and the Austin Country Club, I'm also a member of another club, which um, I think they got their stroke index wrong or something like that. But uh, I managed to sort of, that brings my handicap down playing out there. And then I get back to Austin Country Club and it's, um, it's a tricky course with tricky greens and you know I've been playing the course for 10 years or so and I still don't know which way they're going on the green so that tends to bump your handicap up a bit and I haven't uh, had the luxury of playing out at the other club for quite a while so I was sitting around about two but I was down at point eight, and um, uh, yeah I'm sort of on a, a string of good uh, good scores at the moment so it's going to come down hopefully um, but then when you're playing with mates who are you know you're, you're betting big time you don't really want a large handicap so <laughs> no we'll We'll see. We'll see what happens. It's good fun, though. Tell us about the charity work or the social work or however you term it. What do you do in that space? Um, well, I've done uh, a lot of things. I used to run uh, run a route for uh, Root, whatever you call it. I don't know what the Australian pronunciation is now, but um, for Meals on Wheels, we, you know, just typical Meals on Wheels stuff. But that sort of got a little bit depressing. Like, I think like three quarters of my um, my signed houses or whatever the the occupants died um and you get close to these people and it's you know it, it sort of knocks you around a little bit after you you lose everyone um or lose most of them um i also was a or am every now and again a chef at um the austin uh, homeless center downtown um which I, I loved doing um whilst i was doing uh, chef work i'd also you know I'd prepare all the meals etc and then i'd go out and be the sort of like the front of house manager um which basically means that you clean up all the stuff that they bill and uh, you get some pretty bad stuff to clean up let me assure you um, and uh, but I, I quit there just because I, things started to turn around here where the, 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 the city mayor or whatever 
openly welcomed homeless people into um, the Austin downtown area, which um, there was, you know, 95% of these homeless people are really, really good people. They're just down on their luck and there's just a small increment that sort of uh, you you, you tend to worry a bit about. Um, And one day I was uh, minding my business out in the front of the house where everyone dines and I was washing my washcloths, so I'm sort of bending over and I was aware there was a bit of a scuffle behind me, which happened every, you know, every now and again. And um, then I'm pretty sure I heard one of the seats just slam down on the concrete made a large noise and then people just started running everywhere and I didn't quite understand. I just thought, okay, they want to get out of the way of the fight. But um, then I just walked calmly to the back of the kitchen, which is behind me. And there's a, a, one of the volunteers was on the ground with, uh, he'd been shot. Um, And basically uh, the big, the loud noise I heard was a gunshot. And uh, when we had a look at the wall on the inside of the wall, it missed me by about three inches. Um, So when I was bending over to wash the cloth, so I I sort of, you know, gradually sort of steered away from that work it just it was getting a little bit too dangerous down there but I I enjoyed it and as I said like 95% of the people are just down on their luck and they're really really good folks so you know I enjoyed that um and we we, my wife and I spend um a lot of time with some various other uh, charities that have got to do with helping sort of underprivileged and assisting kids uh, get tuition in high school such as they can go to college and you know uh, finance um, some of their college fees so they can be the, th- the first in their family or whatever ever to go to college. So we're trying to sort of break a trend in their, their family. And we are, I also operated the general store at some homeless village where um, uh, for quite a while. So, you know, I had a bit going on and it was all good fun, but, um, you know, I, I won't, yeah, I'll be lying if I said it didn't have some sort of like down and depressive moments as your sort of heart really goes out to these people. Mate, that is hugely admirable work. Good on you for, for doing that, you and your wife. That is amazing uh, generosity of, of spirit and time. I, I wanted to come back to you at the start of the pandemic. So, what's that around two years ago now? You made the decision to, to quit alcohol. What, what led you to that decision? Uh, so, I suppose, I, I was getting like I was just drifting off into a dark place. I was, um, you know, I thought I was just depressed, and it may well be just a phase I'm going through. Um, I was getting grumpier, uh, probably just just gradually becoming more isolated, where I just didn't really want to go out. I didn't want to play golf. I didn't want to do anything. Um, and you know, I've always loved having a drink. And sort of being over in the states was no was no different. Um, I'm not going to shy away from that. But there were times that um, I'd you know I'd overindulge more than I wanted, and I felt I was losing control over that. And uh, it, it took um, you know, and I'd, I'd had periods over my life where I just said, okay, I'm not going to have a drink here for three months or whatever, and I'd do it. And I found it pretty easy to do, to tell you the truth. And I'd feel bloody good about myself for three months. And then, you know, I just put the dots together and, you know, my family was getting worried about me and I've got, you know, I've got a wonderful wife and a wonderful family and I didn't want them losing trust in me. And, you know, you know, you know I suppose the worst thing that could happen in that regard is, you know, I'd lose my wife and you know, lose the sort of respect of my family. So I had one incident where it just scared the shit out of me. Oh, you let us wear sorry. It's, it's yeah, spare scared the crap out of me and I just said no that's it I want to stop and to do so I thought well okay I'm gonna go to some rehab I really want to stop and I went to at the start of uh, the COVID pandemic or whatever there's nothing much to do rather you know it was only just sit inside and 
isolate, etc. But these uh, clinics were still open. So I booked myself into there. I spent 30 days there. And it's simply the best thing I've ever done in my life. I don't know if too many people say that, you know, the 30 days is, you know, one of their better times, but it was for me. I found it eye-opening about discovering about yourself and also discovering about other people and the other situations pe- people have been in. And um, you know, the, amongst my sort of graduation class or whatever you want to call it, you know, we had a couple of uh, uh, Major League Baseball players as a professional golfer. There were surgeons, there were lawyers, there were, hitmen there was a bounty hunter a lot of a, a lot of policemen an undercover FBI guy and, and then they're just a bunch of kids who uh, were rather than sort of alcohol being their addiction sort of it was very much drug related and oxycontin and um, and that leads to sort of t- t- you know meth and all that sort of stuff so you had plenty of stories plenty of you know, heartbreaking stories. Um, and uh, I just, you know, I wanted to stop and uh, I bought 100% into the program. And you know, since I left there, in fact, like halfway through the program, I just knew I wasn't going to drink again. And since then, I haven't had one little desire to have a drink at all. Zero. Um, so I'm, I don't know, I'm 21 months down the track. Um, I don't ever see myself drinking again. I don't want to drink. Um, I've never been happier. Um, and, and I'm not just saying that. You'll hear a lot of people who go to sort of like AA and all that sort of stuff saying they've never been happier and you don't believe them. Well, believe me, I've never been happier. Like it's true happiness. And every day you just can't wait to get out and sort of, you know, achieve something something, do something, not only for yourself, but for other people. So um, it's changed me a lot and uh, for the better. So yeah, I'm quite proud of that, to tell you the truth. Guys, you should be. And just before we get to the break, Tim, I don't know if this was the incident you're referring to that really scared you, but around this time, you were diagnosed, I think, with a with a leaking valve in, in your heart, an aortic valve. Was that the, if there was a light bulb moment, was, was that it? No, um, I, I carried on drinking despite that. But what, what happened is that once I got that diagnosed, they put me on some drugs and um, they were drugs that, you know, that comes with a warning like I suppose most drugs do, that say that, you know, uh, don't drink alcohol while taking this medication. And um, there's a reason they put that on there. Um, cause you shouldn't like it would, um, I'd be three drinks in feeling fine in the next moment. I can't remember a damn thing. Um, and, uh, it may be that or other medication I was taking, but the, the scary incident was where I just, I basically lost three days out of my life. I, I did not know what happened. And, uh, it was at that time I just said, no, come on, grow up, be a big man. Let's, let's do this. So. Mm. I, I did it, and as I said, I'm, I'm just delighted that I did do it. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Up next, the son of Mary and Brian May. He's going to take us back to his childhood. We'll go down memory lane with Tim May right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to former Test and one-day off-spinner Tim May. So, Tim, you're born on Australia Day, January 26 in Adelaide, but I can only assume you must have been fond of the hospital experience because you'd end up going back plenty of times as a kid, wouldn't you? I'm sorry, but five broken arms. Are we talking a combination of the right wing and the left wing? Yeah, they, they weren't uh, restricted to just one side. I thought I'd share it around a little bit, but... Uh... Yeah, I you know the, I did them various ways. One, I was climbing a tree. The first one, I was climbing a tree on a ladder out the back when I was very young. And my sister thought it would be a really good idea to pull the ladder out from underneath me. Um, and I just plummeted to the ground and landed on a big root of the tree. What else did I do? My most famous one is I didn't tell anyone for two weeks, including my parents, because I was so embarrassed. So it was in grade four. I was playing tennis against a fella called uh, Derek Jolly Miller. <laughs> Wonderful bloke, gifted, gifted sportsman, uh, Jolly Miller. And I beat him in the grade four tennis championship. And we're playing on one of those hard courts. And as you do, you know, showing off and just being a bit of a lair, I tried to jump the net. Um, oh, no. Unfortunately, my little legs didn't clear the net and um, I tripped over the net and landed on the court. And, you know, two weeks later, it was, you know, the x-ray showed I'd broken it, but I was too embarrassed. Didn't tell my parents. I'd just cry, cry myself to sleep every night for a couple of weeks before I had to give in. I love but, it. Uh, I love it. What, speaking of parents, so what part did your old man play in introducing you to the game of cricket and, and then subsequent to that, shaping your direction in it? Your dad was one of those dads and very fortunate to have one that just wanted his kid to play sport and because he loved sport um, and at any opportunity he'd be out the back bowling these crappy little sidearm leg spinners that um, like they didn't even really turn they were just sort of like <laughs> the, the top spinners with little or nothing on them they were terrible um, but he, he would bowl and you know all afternoon he would and uh, so we'd have a little backyard test he couldn't bat either so I got some pretty cheap wickets but he he was uh yeah he was there he introduced me to the game of cricket um and then he made many many sacrifices um throughout his life to enable me to sort of be able to uh, go to a school that was renowned for its um, uh, the products it's built, the cricket products that it's produced, and that was um, a school called Prince Alfred College, um, which I think we've had about four test captains from it. I think that's a, I don't think there's any school in the world that can boast that, including the uh, yeah, Ian and Greg Chapel. Um, Greg Blewett went there as well. So he, you know, we, we didn't have the most affluent upbringing, and I know that he had to sacrifice mum and dad had to sacrifice a lot of things in order to put me through school there um and then you know he wouldn't mum and dad just wouldn't miss a, a ball bowled a ball that I bowled ever in Adelaide no matter what I was playing if I was playing you know C grade E grade A grade uh, district cricket or state or Australian cricket they were all in Adelaide they were always there and you know sometimes I probably didn't appreciate that like you know give me some space mum and dad or whatever but now yeah. that I'm a parent I, I can totally understand stand say you know they were wonderful and I couldn't wish for better parents in that regard that's amazing yeah it's sorry not... I shouldn't have said in that in that regard I would have said I should have said I couldn't have wished for better parents yeah that's better. it's not until the cycle comes around again and we're parents ourselves I think we we have a true appreciation of what our folks did for us as kids and what about your early memories of footy Tim were you small as a kid uh skinny believe it or not particularly frightened sort of a very elusive half forward flank if there was a pack I was never near it I was always pretty keen for the loose ball um, but you know, I had some skills uh, in the. I, I, you know, I played 
played first 18 football for Prince Alfred College. Um, and then after I left school, I played a couple of games for the uh, Nord Football Club under-17s. They We were, we were we really were a team of midgets and they had put me centre-half forward. So that, that I really wasn't well-placed there. But I only lasted two games before I completely wrecked my knee and so never played football again. Yeah, because it wasn't just the arm that gave you grief, was it? It was footy where you first blew out your knee. And I say first because yeah. a bit like the arm, there are a few subsequent mishaps. Yeah, look, I've had 14 operations as we speak um, um, on my right knee only. Um, so back in the, you know, in the sort of the genesis for all that and the, the numerous operations is back in the day, in 1978, I think I did my knee, they... Uh, and I ripped both of my cartilages. What they did in those days, if you had a torn cartilage, they'd rip the whole thing out. They wouldn't mend it. They'd just rip them out. And so then you just had bone on bone after that. So uh, that just, you know, it basically every season, you know, halfway through a season or at the end of the season, I'd have to have a clean up out of my knees cleaned up. Um, and I did some damage, you know, some you know, further damage to it and various incidents and all that sort of stuff where I did more lig- ligament damage and stuff like that. Uh, I was supposed to have a knee replacement a couple of years ago but then I had um, a stem cell uh, injection and I also someone put me on some CBD tablets cannabinoids and uh, I haven't had a problem with my knee since uh, so I'll keep take, taking them those tablets and uh, so things are good at the moment I'm sort of defying the odds so bad luck followed you as an adult too didn't I and didn't your great mate your old roomie uh, Steve War keep a list of every time you got you caught one in the nets there were a few <laughs> a few blows weren't there in the net yeah, yeah I, I copped a beauty at Lord I was well away from the, the it was in the lead up to the Ashes test in 93 I think it was and um, Tom Moody was batting in the nets powerful unit Tom mm. And it was very early in the nets, and it was a dry, particularly dry summer over there. And so there was dew on the grass and a really hard ground. And um, I was having catches with Bob Simpson was putting me through a little catch routine, catching routine because I sucked at catching. And I just heard the call, you know, look out. So you instantly turn around to sort of see who's going to get hit. And the ball has bounced, I don't know, like 10 yards prior to me. It was like a tracer bullet, and it just skidded and it just came and just smashed me in the mouth um I think I ended up having I don't know 19 stitches and I had my top lip look like one of those African tribesmen who put plates in their mouth uh, so I looked like a even more abnormal than I normally look for the next three or four weeks but uh, it, that, that knocked the crap out of me I got a bit of concussion and um, but you know, if anything was going to happen at the Nets or anywhere like I think Alan Border described me as an accident waiting to happen but <laughs> You know, it happened to me. So anyway, He's not that's even, life. Not even batting in your, in your competent in the mush. Um, as a kid, though, yep. you moved through the grades, primary school, underage cricket, grade cricket for Kensington, Adelaide University, and then for SA and finally Australia, of course. But you actually captained the state at under, I think, was it under-17s and under-19 level, Maisie? Did the leadership, yep. leadership, leadership suit you? No, 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 no. I, I, I really couldn't lead an army of ants to a sugar bowl. I, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I rated myself as intelligent, but I, I think I was just a bit too conservative and I, I enjoyed my cricket when I didn't have that responsibility. So um, I was better off not being a captain, I think. Yeah, okay, yeah. You're with, this is your journey brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can catch them online, uh, tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, Tim May graduates to first-class cricket and the Australian Test Team. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with the man Steve Waugh calls his all-time favourite touring teammate. We might have to explore that later, Tim May. But for now, do you remember your Shield debut? I do. It was the first game of the year. We played New South Wales. I think they were full strength. I got none for, I'm pretty sure it was 99. Um, Nearly joined the illustrious club of those who got (laughs) zero for 100 in their first first game. But I didn't bowl too bad. You know, and it was the first day of an Adelaide Oval track that was, Mm. you know, didn't spin at all, just came on beautifully to the bat. Um, You know, we were bowling to some pretty good players. Um, Then I... I think I only might have got one or two wickets in the second innings. I remember first first wicket was Steve Rickson, who was the wicket keeper batsman, and uh, he uh, it was actually a full toss, and I think he hit it to John Inverarity at short mid on or something like that. So it wasn't the best ball to get your wicket uh, first wicket on, but um, you know I, I probably sort of and then I played a few more games, then I busted my knee again and I spent most of the year out and then I played the final they recalled me for the final shield game once I got fit and I took five wickets in the second innings and I just thought okay you know perhaps I can make this level so um that was my first year and first class cricket you won Sheffield Shield Player of the Year one year, though, and the late Tony Gregg presented you with the Golden Goblets. Oh, yes, the much-prized uh, Golden Goblets, which made the trip over here um, to Austin, <laughs> and uh, they're put to good use. The uh, cleaning lady, Juanita, she um, she puts all the loose change, um, some toothbrush toothbrushes when she's got to clean little bits of the carpet. They're all stored in the, uh, <laughs> the golf tees that spill out of my pants. They're all, all those things are stored in the Golden Goblets. Now. now, your last Shield game, this was great, SA actually won the title. So you, you spent a decade playing at this level, a decade of toil, and you finally saluted. Now, that had to have been heavily celebrated, surely. Yes, it was. It was a uh, it was a big one. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but it, w- it would prove to be my last first-class game. Um, so I went out in appropriate style. We, we partied hard for, I, I don't know, the guys probably went on for a couple of weeks, but after four days, I had to get on a plane, go to the States and see um, Katie, my wife-to-be. And uh, I sat down on the plane. I was next to some dude and he just turned around to me. As soon as I sat down, he said, man, he, you smell like you've been on alcohol for four days. You know, you smell and look like you've been on alcohol for four days straight. And I just looked at him and just said, Correct. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, God, it, and I slept the whole way. I just slept the whole way. Um, that poor bloke. And when I wake up, he wasn't next to me anymore. <laughs> I must <laughs> yeah. have been snoring, I think. Well, well, we'll get to that subject a little bit later. Now, your test debut came against New Zealand in your own backyard at the Adelaide Oval, which was nice. So that was December 87. John Wright's your first test victim. Or was he? Was he? He was, technically speaking, but he probably shouldn't have been. I got that right? Well, yeah, in the scorebook he was. Yeah, right. Um, okay. But I, I, I got, there was a guy called Andrew Jones who um, made some runs that series. He batted number three, and I got him really early. I was probably a second or third over or something like that. He was caught and close, and I don't know who the umpire was. It might have been Steve Randall. I can't remember. He just said, no, nah, not out, which none of us could believe. But I suppose in these days with DRS, I would have got that wicket, but that wasn't to be. But then, so, you know, what goes around comes around, and... Uh, a few hours later, the John Wright 
just played mm. forward. There was a couple of noises, but he didn't hit it. And uh, someone caught it at short leg and the umpire gave it out. So I thought, no, okay, fair enough. But, you know, it's not the way you want to really get your first test wicket. But uh, got there. I wanted to ask you about the tour of Pakistan the following year. So 1988, you're obviously still very fresh on the scene. You're playing in Karachi, I think. You walk out to soak in the atmosphere as you do. The scoreboard's there. Really proud moment for any cricketer. There's all the names, Marsh, Boone, uh, Dino, AB. And then your name. What was your name on the scoreboard at Karachi, please, Tim? Timmy. Timmy. T-I-M-A-Y. That's they, they the whole tour. That's what they thought my name was, Tim A. And but Tim A, uh, as Tim A, you bowled very well. I think four for ninety from your forty overs. But the great Jarvid Mandad, well, he destroyed uh, Australia in this test. A man of the match honours, two hundred and eleven. They only had to bat once, Pakistan, as it turned out. But what was he wearing on his head, Jarvid? Um, well, yeah, he was wearing a white cap, as you know. Pakistan got green colours, so that was different. But it had the big. I love New York on his cap. He had an I love New York cap uh, in a test game, and I think he was captain in those days. So, yeah, that was a little bit different. Haven't seen that Haven't seen that again. He just woke it up and taken you to the cleaners, it felt like. Um, career highlights yeah. for you, five for nine v the West Indies we, we mentioned, their second innings of 93. That obviously leaps off the page individually. Actually, just on that, is it right that you said to AB – on that day, as history would have it, get me on. The ball feels so good in my fingers. Can you explain yep. that? I, 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 you know, every time I, I feel it mid-on, well, they hit me at mid-on, and you know, when they throw the ball back, you always, I always try to you know just spin the ball, see how it feels in the fingers, because it, it does vary from time to time. And um, this ball just felt wonderful. It felt small, and the seam felt big. And I said to AB, mate, you got to get me on here. Oh, it, it, it feels so damn good in my hand. Um, and he was about to bring me on before tea. And then some guy hit, hit the ball to me and I spiked myself through the thumb. And so I had this dirty great big cut through my thumb, which I had to go off the field and sort of get that patched up. Um, so he couldn't bring me on until I think I was 20 minutes off the field or something like that. So he couldn't bring me on until 20 minutes after tea, um, after I observed my penance. So um, we could have got that game over a lot quicker, but we didn't. So the World Cup of 87, two Ashes Tour wins in 88 and 93 as well. I imagine the World Cup's got to be top of the tree, doesn't it? Mm, um, yeah, that was good, but I didn't really do much. No, I played in all the games, did pretty well. But then in the final, I you know I bowled four. It was one of those days you couldn't grip the ball. Mm. I found it really difficult to put something on the ball. Uh, and I think I had some guy caught on the boundary, and then it by Steve Waugh, and he then he decided in his celebration to walk backwards, which I never quite understood. So instead of claiming a wicket, it was six. So yeah, I I you know I would have felt a lot better if I'd won the game, and it was my first ever tour, and so you know. If you've come straight in and you win something, it's not as Mm. fulfilling. Well, it wasn't as fulfilling to me as something like an Ashes tour where in in 93, I toured in 89, I was 12th man in every test match, um, so I never got to play. And then the Ashes tour in 93, I finally got to play and, you know, if I can be sort of unmodest, I I think I bowled pretty bloody well. And I I picked up on it. They didn't play me in the first test. They played me in the next, whatever, the subsequent test. And I 
I got 20 something wickets or something and bowling at the other end of Warney. So mm. we, that was a victory and I felt like I, I really earned, or, you know, earned the spot in the team and you know had some small part to play in the victory. Yeah, 21 wickets for being overlooked in the first test is an amazing uh, achievement. We're talking to Tim May on This Is Your Journey thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Now that's Tim on field, but we're pretty keen to hear what took place off it, which in retirement includes perhaps his greatest contribution to the game. That's next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You played in an era, it must be said, of very long tours, you know, dodgy itineraries and, and probably at times even dodgy accommodation. Now, you room with Tugger and Merv, Merv Hughes for the most part, I think. Now, I'm not sure what they thought of it, but Tim, you played cricket for Australia, but am I right to say you could have snored for it too, couldn't you? Well, I'm reliant on other people. We're relying on other people's judgment there, and oh, um, certainly Merv, Merv and Stephen both thought that I snored a significant amount, and it's backed up by my wife. So, uh, yeah, I probably could have. I, yes. Oh well, these things happen. And you, you didn't, you didn't just sit there and cop it though. You had a couple of anti-snoring devices, didn't you? But one of them wasn't great. There was a bit of trial and error with this sort of stuff, wasn't there? Yeah, I had a. Um, what it was a plastic thing that you'd stick in your nose that would flare open your your nostrils, which apparently would you know assist you know reducing snoring, um, and, and it did work. But there was a, a sort of a, a rider to that, and that it worked when it was in. And these things, because uh, there was a lot of tension of these bit of plastic so if you just moved your head a little bit or just twitch with your nose, the bloody thing went pinging off into the night um and i'd spend half my night looking for these things um <laughs> because if i went to sleep after that i'd start snoring again and tugger especially would throw pillows and Merv would just jump on me but uh, tugger would throw pillows etc or banish me to the bath i sl- slept in the bath a couple of times um but then uh, we found something and it was by pure chance and this is an actual true story and it's weird that there was a, a bought, I had a yellow Puma T-shirt. Yeah, probably not the greatest taste, but when I if I wore it at night, I would not snore. Hang on, for some reason. Hang on, um, explain that. Yeah, you know, I, I know it is bizarre, but it, it is true, and it worked famously until where some you're either in India or Pakistan, and it never got came back from the laundry, and uh, it started snoring in. So uh, I don't know if anyone, no one's been able to explain the science behind that, but uh, either it was in Stephen Waugh's head that the yellow T-shirt sort of, you know, took away the snoring, but I was still actually <laughs> snoring, but he wasn't worrying about it, therefore he wasn't trying to hear me snore. I don't know, but uh, anyway, when the yellow T-shirt disappeared, the snoring came back. We've all, we've all had our movies that we keep coming back to, our all-timers, if you like. Now, yours is a ripper many will recall from, fondly. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Matthew Broderick, of course, so released in 86. Now, so fond of it were you, though, Maisie, it became part of your cricket journey, didn't it? Um, yeah, reasonably immaturely, I might add. Um, Fer- Ferris was very cool. Um, Tim May, not cool. Uh, was not cool. Still am not cool. And... Um, I, you know, I idolised Ferris. Um, obviously, I realised he was a fictitious character, um, 
But so for every game of first class cricket I played, and each player gets uh, an allocation of, I think in our day, like four, four tickets or something like that, um, I'd always leave them, or I'd always leave two of them for Ferris at any ground I'd play in the whole world. And <laughs> my, my, mates, my mates all knew about it. Um, so if they wanted to get into the ground um, across the world, they, all they had to do was just walk up and say, Ferris Bueller, two tickets, and in they got. How good, how good. Uh, they yeah. get out of jail free card. I love it. And a- around this time, or as the years would go on, of course, when you were in your prime, cricket was lagging behind the other sports, and not, not just around the world, but domestically too, when it came to getting a more equitable share of the game's revenues. Now, you were made the inaugural CEO of the Australian Cricketers Association in 1996 when you stopped playing. Now, how big a pair of boxing gloves did you need for this job, Tim? Uh, you probably needed the biggest pair of boxing gloves plus more. Um, it was um, like, uh, yeah, I, I went into it and I was very wet behind the ears. I've, I've, you know, my previous working life, I'd been a, a chartered accountant where there wasn't great disputes or whatever, and you didn't have to go into negotiations. Um, so there was me, and I um, was ably assisted by a couple of blokes from Sports and Entertainment Limited from Sydney, a guy called James Erskine um, and his, uh, his partner, Basil Scafidi. And they were there to help me a bit, but it was it was largely up, up, upon me um, negotiating with Cricket Australia. And cricket, well, the Australian Cricket Board, it was in those days. And they were very, um, it, it was very much a master-slave relationship. They treated the players like that. And that's the reason you had player associations emerge, because you're just not getting a fair deal if they... If all the player associations, all the governing bodies treated their players with respect, they would actually be no need for a player association. So with that mindset, we went into battle and um, it, it took a, I don't know, six, nine months of just, you know, it was headlines for, you know, that period of time about possible strikes. And mm. they were frankly, you know, it was eye-opening to me about just how unreasonable these, some of the people got. Um that's what I thought at the time, but you know now I, I sit back and reflect upon it like it's business, and I probably you know was just too inexperienced to realise that. But um, what we managed to do over you know six to nine months was to keep all the players together, um, because if you have one player that just sort of says no, you know I'm going to take because that lots of players were offered individual deals to break the the unity of the players. And everyone stuck together. Um, so the reason the player association is around these days, it's got nothing to do with, you know, because Tim May established it or whatever. It's because the players stuck together. They believed um, in, you know, what we were trying to represent. And, um, you know, they keep believing uh, keep believing the players association. There was a big bun fight a couple of years ago, which I couldn't get, quite get my head around. It seemed like a complete and absolute waste of time in the end because the players got what they wanted, but the players are still 100% behind them and that's the strength, the only strength the players need. And you were then charged to help facilitate the establishment of of player associations across the world. So the aim there was obviously to ensure that not only players here in Australia had equitable terms of employment, but also uh, their rivals throughout the world. So I imagine an enormously deep level of satisfaction comes with that. I mean, the playing career was unreal, but I wonder if this almost surpassed it given the meaning and the long-term benefits of it oh yeah um oh, oh, yeah like now i'm i don't know 30 years ago or something i retired uh did the player association things 
for both with the Australian Cricketers Association and FICA, which is the international body. I did that for about 15 years and um, I look back at that with a significant amount of pride. Um, it was a pretty lonely job. Um, the odds were certainly against you. You know, we had a tiny, tiny, tiny little budget and you're always going up against these large governing bodies who've got millions in reserve to spend on consultants and legal fees and whatnot. Um, but I don't know, I presume it's got something to do with just the, the sportsman in you that you, you know, you, and perhaps the off spinner in you that, you know, you get built around a little bit, but you just got to keep coming back and kept coming back. And, and finally, if you just, you know, never go away, you, you'll get some success. And so, we're gonna. We we're lucky that we got um, success, and yes, I look back at that proudly. Uh, we're nearly out of time, Tim. But a couple of quick singles, as they say in the classics. Best ever teammate. Oh, gee, best ever teammate. Oh, I don't know if I can single out anyone. <laughs> uh, they're, oh, oh, I won't say I loved them all, but you know, there's some because you're playing in different teams yeah. and all that sort yeah. of stuff. There's so many, but. You know, I really do. I did love playing with Steve War, and yeah, I know he says that you know favourable things about me rooming with him. But we had people don't realise about Stephen. Stephen is a very funny man. He's he's sort of sneaky funny, um, and what we tend to make have a lot of fun in places where you really it was difficult to have fun. So I really enjoyed playing with Stephen, but, you know, there's uh, Mervyn, idiot, David Boone, loved him. Uh, I could go on and on. I'm I'm just missing people out. But in in a club sense, I played cricket with a guy called Sam Parkinson. Um, He did play a bit of state cricket. He was a good state fast bowler. And he's probably the funniest bloke I've ever met. Um, So I had a lot of laughs with Samuel. Toughest opponent? There is someone that comes to mind with this one, isn't there? I think I hated bowling to Martin Crow. He um, I, every time I bowled to him, no matter if the pitch was turning or it was a beautiful day for drifting away from, I just got the impression that he could hit me wherever he wanted. If the ball was outside off, he could still hit it behind square. Like he was. He was wonderful, and you know, I bowled as some good players. Um, obviously, like yeah, you have Viv Richards, Brian Lara's, those sorts of guys. Um, and you know, they're certainly up there. But Martin, I just felt like he's just not even going to give me a chance, and he just doesn't respect me at all. And then I bumped into Martin about ten years ago. Oh no, it wasn't no. ten years after I finished up on um, God, somewhere in Queensland. And he said I was the best off spinner he ever faced, and I've just gone, God, you must have had contempt, absolute contempt for the other poor buggers. <laughs> like, um, so that was nice of him to say, but I just think he probably said it because I was standing next to him. <laughs> hey, who was the best sledger? Best on the lip? Uh, well, Mervyn made me laugh a lot. Yeah, uh, he was very good. Healy would say a couple of things. Very clever, Healy. Some of his sledges, but. It, it's a lot. It's, it's talked about a lot, sledging, and you know how prevalent it is out in the field and all that sort of stuff. When you get up to fit, like the real damage is done in club level. That's where people just don't know, and they'll just sledge for the sake of sledging, and it gets out of control. When you play first class cricket, it's nah, it's nothing. Favorite ground to play on? Adelaide Oval or Lords? Adelaide Oval. You know, for an oval that I played 
so many at so many times it was still as pleasurable walking out into that ground on you know my 400th day as it was on my first day loved it and lords is just special just absolutely special. Love the place. Tim, I've got to thank you so much for donating your time today. An incredible journey you have had and your ability to tell it with humility and humour only enhances it really. And Many of cricket's most astute minds say you were underrated with the ball, even if you most certainly had your headline grabbing moments with it as well. And your legacy, as we said, is enshrined by the fact that you have ensured that every player who has come after you is rewarded as they should be. And I'm not sure if it gets much better than that. So well done on all you achieved. Uh, best luck with uh, life and times over there in Texas. And thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Sam. Enjoyed it, mate. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.